right, so we are back for another episode of Christ and Kingdom. Today on the program, I am joined by a good friend and a theological uh, mentor of mine, really, Lane Tipton. He probably wouldn't, uh, <laughs> I don't know what he thinks about that, but he has been teaching me so much. I don't know how else to describe Lane, but I've been benefiting from his lectures over at Reform Forum and, of course, uh, the things that he's written, especially this book that he has written lately called The Trinitarian Theology of Cornelius Van Til. And, uh, and you know, this is actually the third podcast. So this is part three oh, of wow. hopefully what I had initially designed as like a five-part series, because really, as Lane, you will agree, that that's about how long it takes to at least substantially work through some of your material. But anyway, yeah. welcome yeah. to the program, brother. Thank you so much for being here. I know you're, I know you're a little bit under the weather, but I'm grateful that you made it. And uh, welcome back, brother. You are a dear brother and friend in the Lord and a co-belligerent in the cause for consistent Calvinism and Reformed theology. It's a delight to be here, brother. Yes, yes, indeed. Uh, well, today, you know, I wanted to talk about some of the highlights of your book and some of the more important aspects of exactly that, Reformed Trinitarianism. And, uh, and maybe just to start us off, not, uh, you know, I've been talking to people about your book, Lane. Not a lot of people have read the book. I, I have had a couple brothers that have already worked through it, and they absolutely love it. But there's still a lot of folks out there that have not read the book. So if you don't mind, Lane, let me read what you have said here on page 20, and then we can start elaborating on some of these key sure. points. And so if you don't mind, it's a little bit of reading, but to me, this is the summary of the entire book. So if, if everyone out there, you get the book, The Trinitarian Theology of Cornelius Van Til, you're going to read on page 20 um, what Lane calls classical reform Trinitarianism and federalism. And this is what <coughs> Lane says here. He talks about this uh, on this book, in this page, where he says, Van Til presents a comprehensive alternative to all forms of correlativism and mutualism. The theological foundations of the confessional Trinitarianism summarized by A.A. Hodge, the conception and absolute personality of the triune God set forth by Herman Bovink, the autotheon doctrine of absolute Trinitarian persons developed by John Calvin, the living Trinitarian persons who exhaustively indwell one another in relations of coherence, as set forth by Francis Turretin and Charles Hodge, and the deeper Protestant conception of the image of God and the doctrine of the covenant of works expounded by Gerhardus Voss, all converge to form what Van Til termed the representational principle. Van Til's representational principle is the programmatic response of confessional Reformed Trinitarianism and federalism to various expressions of correlativism and mutualism. And that really is what you're defending throughout the book. Yeah, and that's the Lane, golden quote, brother. You nailed it. Yeah, yeah, that's it right there. And, and Lane, let me ask you this. As you look out at the landscape today, I know you and I talk a lot about this. What are some of your concerns, brother? I guess just even just deviating from my 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 kind of pre-prepared notes here. Sure. Kind of want to hear your heart a little bit in terms of the current debate on everything, oh, I don't know, doctrine of God, subordination issues, things that are relevant to what you're addressing in this book. What are some of your concerns and where do some of your burdens kind of lie right now? Yeah, I, I... 
Emilio, you know, I've said this before, and I'll say it again. I'm not going to tire of saying it. There is a crisis within the Reformed theological community, the Reformed uh, churches, and that uh, that crisis really is, I think, probably most capably set forth in this way, that that classical Reformed Trinitarianism and classical Reformed Federalism set forth in our confessional standards simply isn't understood by a growing number of otherwise Reformed theologians. What I have seen, what I continue to witness, is a growing interest of interest, growing interest in the theology of Karl Barth on the one side, a growing interest of Thomas Aquinas on the other side. And in the early portion of that book, in the uh, in the preface that I write to it, and then the introduction, I note that classical reform, Trinitarianism, and federalism stands over against all forms of either front door or back door mutualism. And let me define those terms. Mutualism is the idea that that either God is reproportioned to the modality of human becoming. Or the human is reproportioned to the modality of divine being. In the theology of Karl Barth, the theology of dipolar theism, Charles Hartshorn, John Frame, Scott Oliphant, and others, um, there's a programmatic claim that God, in his relation to creation, either generates or takes to himself the qualities of mutability, change, and development. The, um, the, the, the dipolar proposal is that apart from creation, God is infinite, eternal, and unchangeable. But in relation to creation, he takes on or generates a whole set of new properties, a different attribute set. And in terms of it, he's a creature, just larger, grander, but still a creature. And so that front door mutualism is is denied by classical Reformed theologians who affirm the self-contained character of the triune God as the creator. But on the other side, the backdoor mutualism, the idea that man is reproportioned ontologically to partake in the being of God, that is set forth by Thomas Aquinas and his modern Roman Catholic interpreters who insist that in order for man to have fruition of God, man must be elevated above his nature to participate in the nature of God. And when that is affirmed, you have affirmed classical, traditional, Thomistic, Roman Catholic theology. And it is a failure of classical re- to embrace classical reformed or confessionally reformed federalism the idea that adam didn't need to be ontologically reproportioned above his nature to participate in the nature of god he needed a covenant of works in order to advance as he was to a higher estate not ontologically altered but ad- uh, covenantally advanced that's the difference. And and so when I look at the landscape, I, I see something happening that's concerning to me, whether it's um, Sanders, Fesco, or some of the theology that, that I've seen from uh, others in the Reformed tradition along these lines, there's, there's a, a failure to recognize that 
classical Reformed Trinitarianism and Federalism cannot peacefully coexist with either the front-door mutualism of Bart and his ilk or the backdoor mutualism of Aquinas and his ilk. And so these attempts to retrieve in varying combinations, Bart and Aquinas, really is taking two divergent forms of correlativism, either the medieval correlativism of Aquinas or the modern correlativism of Bart, and seeking to retrieve them in the advancement of Reformed theology. The the problem with that is that Reformed theology, as I argue at the beginning and the end of the book, it's the bookends, and I don't think a, a, a lot of people can get lost in the middle of the book, but the bookends are to say this, that confessional Reformed Trinitarianism and Federalism is a tertium quid. It has its own distinctive doctrines of the creator-creature relation and its manifold systematic implications, and they resist the front-door mutualism and the back-door mutualism of a Bart on the one side, Aquinas on the other side. And the evangelical world, as I assess it, is confused on this issue. And that's crept in to some modern Reformed theologians. I'll just give you two, two very brief examples. On the front-door mutualism, you can see the concession to the idea that God changes to become like the creature in the work of Freeman Oliphant. Uh, unaware, I think, in some ways that they've conceded so much terrain to a modernist front-door mutualism. The work of John Fesco, when he says that Voss and Aquinas are uh, one when it com- or homogenous or unified when it comes to their theology of nature and, by extension, grace— Uh, That is blind or doesn't show proper awareness to this backdoor form of mutualism. And so I just see a kind of pervasive and I fear growing lack of clarity there. And this book, from that standpoint, is designed to cut a clear, straight course of what you have insightfully called the reformed path that is distinctive in its deep theological structures of the creator-creature relation, uh, which is just another way of saying it has a distinctive Trinitarian and covenantal point of integration that's missing in the likes of Bart and Aquinas. Yeah, I think it adds a whole another layer of complication to with Reformed theology. As you say, Reformed Trinitarianism, Reformed Federalism, they really do go together, so that when you have all these different species, let's say, for example, Lane, of covenant theology, of new covenant theology, or you have something else, you have some kind of hybrid dispensational view now, or premillennial view, or something like that, but that doesn't stick to the strict, uh, I guess, to the to the strict parameters of a, of a covenant of works, covenant of grace distinction, you really do begin to open up the door for a completely different concept of nature and grace. Yeah. And that, I mean, that's something I learned from you years ago, how important that distinction and that issue of nature and grace and how programmatic it is for your theology, I mean, it will really color everything. Uh, where you stand on nature and grace, how you view the covenant of works, it's it's not just it's not just debating, guys debating whether or not they want to be confessional or not. It really affects all of your theology. 
Yeah, it, it does, Emilio. That's very insightful. It's a programmatic and not ad hoc theological issue. Uh, what you think about the relation of the creator to the creature in its distinctive reformed expression is going to color what you think about image of God, covenant of works, nature, uh, grace. It's going to provide a, a backdrop for your understanding of sin and salvation, of sacrament and beatitude. And so uh, one last way of putting it is I think a former generation, we had people like Robert Strimple, we had people like Meredith Klein, we had people like Cornelius Van Til, Gerhard Svoss, Herman Bavink. In different ways, they all shared this gift. They all were capable of thinking in terms of the interconnected facets of a reformed system of theology, A. And secondly, they were able to understand divergent, distinctive systems of theology from Trinity to creation to sin to redemption to sacrament to consummation. And they were able to set the systematic character of Reformed theology over against the systematic character of modernist dialectical approaches like Barth or medieval dialectical approaches of nature grace like Thomas. And I think that's missed today. And so your point is such a good one that this this isn't just this isn't a boutique matter. We're not just talking about some narrow compartmentalized category of theology that we just like gaining clarity on for the sake of gaining clarity. We're really, uh, Emilio, and I, I think your listeners need to hear this. We're in a crisis right now, and that crisis is that there are camps that. 30, 40, 50 years ago, were clearly differentiated by our best theologians. But those camps are now, in various retrieval projects, encroaching upon the Reformed tradition, the Reformed theological system, and in varying ways compromising its integrity, and by extension, compromising the clarity of the gospel. Uh, the gospel is understood very differently by Bardians, very differently by traditional Roman Catholics, and very differently by advocates of the deeper Protestant conception, the classical Reformed tradition. So I, I do want your listeners to know this, that th- th- these are not isolated issues for intellectually elite people to toy with. It's not a parlor game. This is really seriously, a crisis and the clarity of the witness to the gospel of Jesus Christ is hanging in the balance. And I'm not trying to be melodramatic or overstate things. That's what my book is about, really. That's what the, 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 this entire discussion is about. And the sooner people realize it and begin to think at the proper level, I think the sooner we might be able to see the dawning of a New Reformation in our age, it's much needed, yeah. and I hope it's underway. Well, as you begin to structure the, the, the deeper Protestant conception, the reform path, as I call it, right, there, like are certain feature, yeah, there are certain features of that, and that is, you know, that, 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 you know, that has to do, number one, let's begin with something like what Bavink is advancing with the absolute personality of God, not just Bavink, of course, you, you demonstrate in your book how Hodge and Bavink are basically 
are basically saying the same thing. They're mm-hmm. getting at it mm-hmm. from maybe from different perspectives or mm-hmm. different angles. Mm-hmm. But what are we what, what are we trying to get at? Uh, what are we uh, after when we're talking about the absolute personality of God? Uh, number one, and second of all, if you can, um, w- why is it important to think about both Hodge and Bavink their contribution to Van Til? Yeah, let me take the second question first because I think it will frame something. Uh, the genius of Van Til's proposal, and very few people who have uh, studied Van Til recognize this. But once you see it, you can't ever unsee it. Van Til is an ecumenical bridge between the English Puritan and continental Dutch traditions. He is expounding in the Intro to Systematic Theology and other places the confessional theology that was enshrined and received at Old Princeton and the continental Dutch tradition that you find particularly but not exclusively in the work of Hermann Bavink. And so Van Til is... um, At the same time, he is advancing the tradition, deepening and enriching the tradition. He's also an ecumenical figure who's bringing together the very best of divergent reformed theological traditions. The uh, and that that has been universally neglected in expositions of until you don't find it in Bonson clearly stated you don't find it in frame clearly stated in previous works on him so that's a critical opening observation now when it comes to the absolute personality of God I say it uh, several different ways in the book but let me try it this way just to distill the essence of God is concretely tripersonal that's one way to think about it that, the, that God in his unity cannot be abstracted from, uh, in his essential unity, cannot be abstracted from three distinct persons who subsist as that whole undivided essence. The Father is God. He is a distinct subsistent of the entire and undivided essence. The Son is God. He is a distinct subsistence of the entire undivided essence. The Spirit is God. He is a distinct subsistence of the entire personal essence. So that when you think of it that way, uh, and Bavink likes to put it this way, the essence of God cannot be accessed apart from the three persons who subsist distinctly as that entire undivided essence. And we're instantly faced with an incomprehensible mystery. But one of the implications of that is is that the essence of God cannot be, given these relations of subsistence, cannot be at any point impersonal. Because each person simply is that entire divine essence as a distinct subsistent, or as a distinct subsistent relation of the essence. Secondly, though, and this is a point Bavink and Hodge uh, make, it's really a point that, that uh, the Augustinian tradition more broadly has always made. Um, it's this, that all of God's acts are one. One triune God exists. One triune God creates. One triune God redeems. One triune God is worshipped and adored as the living and the true God. And the way Bavink describes that is that God is, in his 
essence, self-conscious, self-acting. He acts from himself in terms of the unity of his essence. And while there are unique terminal relations peculiar to each person, the Son is incarnate, the Spirit is poured out at Pentecost, not vice versa, there, there's a sense in which Bavink, Hodge, and Van Til picking up on both, ascribe baseline personality to the essence of God. To, to say something toward Gordon Clark, the essence of God is not mute substance. Uh, a substance devoid of personal identity, and so yeah, what I was, do you, yeah, I was going to say. I was going to say, Lane, because that depersonalizes the essence and opens the open. I mean, correct me if I'm wrong, but if you de- depersonalize the essence in that way, you immediately result in a quaternity of some kind. Oh yeah, it's either quaternity or modalism, because for to to take the error of Gordon Clark, which both Bavink, uh, the Hodges, and Van Til shun like poison, uh, in terms of structure, Van Til self-consciously, Hodges and Bavink were prior to him, but uh, the, 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 the point is this, that if the substance is mute, and if with Gordon Clark, God is three bundles of thought, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, so that thought bundles are personal, essence is mute, you've either got a quaternity or you've got a form of modalism. Where behind the thought bundle that is the Father is the absolute mute unity of essence. Behind the thought bundle that is the Son is an impersonal mute substance. Behind the thought bundle that is the Spirit is an impersonal mute substance. And so the the question is, where do you find God? Well, and Lane, let me ask you this, because you would know, but when when Gordon Clark was articulating these thought bundles, which is kind of funny to say, but was that his attempt was that his attempt at trying to define person? It, and, it and, was his attempt and to find a crisp logical way to distinguish it from essence. The problem with Gordon Clark is that he ran into this. Let me tell you how the classical uh, this uh, we'll make this point three from Bavink on this point. But the way that the Reformed define, uh, classical Reformed Trinitarianism defines a Trinitarian person is a subsistent of the entire and undivided essence of God. So uh, a, a Trinitarian person by nature, uh, in the nature of the case, is a subsistent relation within the, God, the undivided Godhead or is a subsistent of the divine essence in its entirety. It's not 33, 33, 33%, and then the other 1% we, we, we forget about. There's, a, there's an intrinsic relation between the person and the essence that subsistence language and conceptuality renders. With, with Clark, here's the problem. How in the world does a thought bundle exhaust mute Substance. <laughs> if substance is mute and it's not conscious, it cannot therefore be personal. Person is abstracted from essence, and there's there's no possibility of a thought bundle subsisting as the divine essence because the divine essence is impersonal and mute, not conscious. And so it it is a you know a a, a problem that arises from a formulation like Gordon Clark's that 
you can't affirm this doctrine of absolute personality. You cannot affirm, A, that each Trinitarian, that you cannot affirm that the essence of God is tripersonal. You cannot affirm these three persons who subsist as the divine essence. And you cannot affirm the personal character of the divine essence with regard to the unity of God in his being and acts. His mute substances don't act. Right? So so this is a a, a really important point. And I guess my fourth point here is that the strangest thing to me is that whether it's Gordon Clark or the DeBoers or uh, Keith Matheson in that just, I don't know what to call it, shameful piece that he wrote in Table Talk on Christianity and Ventilianism. I still can't understand what in the world he was thinking when he, when he titled it that way. Many of the criticisms from people like this hinge on Ventil speaking of God as absolute personality, and uh, they see it in, in such a bad light. The irony is that Ventil's discussion of absolute personality self-consciously depends on and builds upon pillars in the confessional Presbyterian and continental Dutch theological traditions, Hodge's exposition of the Westminster Confession, Bovink and his Reformed Dogmatics, so that people like your Mathesons, your DeBoers, um, and, and others, they're not criticizing and rejecting Van Til. They're criticizing and rejecting the existing Reformed tradition enshrined in and mediated by old Princeton and old Amsterdam behind that. And I think even further back than that, what you find in Calvin and Augustine. So yeah. that really, if I can be as, as uh, I'll, I'll, I'll uh, appeal to what Bill Dennison said in a review of my book in New Horizons, these hmm. amateurish and sophomoric attempts of critique, they have to stop. Um, not just because they're critiquing Van Til, but when you're rejecting Van Til's formulations of absolute personality, you have to recognize you're rejecting the traditions that he represented and integrated. And and so you're not rejecting some idiosyncratic Westminster professor and Orthodox Presbyterian minister. You're 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 calling unchristian or heretical the formulations that Van Til received from the English Puritan and Continental Dutch theological traditions. Yeah, I, I've heard you say that, um, ironically, with all the, all the buzz and all the <coughs> stuff going on with, you know, resourcement and retrievalism and stuff like that, that in, in, one, in a strange way, right, Van Til is kind of the ultimate reti- retrievalist because yes. he really does go back to the best of all of these traditions and try to elucidate what they're really saying and try to synthesize all of that into an integrated, self-conscious, well, what he called more consistent Calvinism. Yeah. And uh, it's amazing that people don't see it. You think part of the problem, Lane, is because up to this point, the work that you've done, uh, Greg Bonson really did not access or engage Van Til very much on the theological level. Uh, he focused so much on method that he left a lot to be desired in the area of theology. Do you think that contributed to a lot of the kind of the anemic understanding of Van Til today? Yeah, it, it did. And in fact, um, Reform Forum within the next couple of years 
will be publishing all of the lectures that I've given in Reformed Academy, which will be 500 pages in the ballpark, maybe a little bit more, that situates Van Til as theologian first and apologist as the overflow or organic outworking of that. Bonson didn't do that well. Frame didn't do that well. Now, Bonson talked about the integration of Van Til's, uh, Van Til's appreciation of Princeton and uh, Old Princeton, Old Amsterdam on method. But like you say, there's a, there's a hole there. And yeah. a second issue that I think uh, we, we need to recognize is, is missing is that we need to be retrieving Augustine, Calvin, Old Princeton, and Old Amsterdam. And if we're doing that, here's what it does. This is what is missing in so many retrieval attempts. It's as though we just suspend the we, – we almost functionally deny the existence of, of Calvin, Confession, Turretin, Voss, Bavink, the Hodges, and others, in order to just jump back to Aquinas or jump back a little closer to Bart and do a kind of wholesale retrieval of their systems. That That's happening. Now, not everyone wants to do yeah. that. The more careful people are trying to just retrieve bits and pieces. But the problem is that you can't retrieve bits and pieces of the great systematic geniuses in the tradition. Aquinas will be insistent that you take the entire system. So will Bart, the deep oh, yeah. structures. Yeah. And, I, and yeah. so I think that the, the fact that Bonson, Frame, um, the, the ones who actually published on Ventil, there are a lot of guys who call themselves Ventilian and really haven't ever even published on Ventil. And they've gone off the, the, the track uh, in different ways. But Bonson and Frame didn't give us a true uh, theological genealogy of Van Til. And because mm. of that, they can be viewed uh, as, as either biblicists or philosophers or men who are so narrowly and arbitrarily committed to Reformed theology that it, it looks like something that we shouldn't be that interested in. After all, we need a, a Catholic theology. Mm. But if you look mm. at Van Til and his appropriation of Chalcedon, Augustine, Calvin, Westminster Standards, and these great streams of Reformed theology, um, he, he resists all of those caricatures and then to come full circle to your point, winds up being, here's the irony, perhaps the greatest retrievalist of what is orthodox in the 20th century. Now, I know that can be debated. I know Bavink did a lot. I know Voss did a lot. I know others did a lot. But, yeah. but I think you're on the, on the right track uh, in making yeah, that observation. I, oh, yeah. I, I think that if you're retrieving a bunch of data and you're pulling from a bunch of Latin sources for the purpose of generating some sort of um, you know, evidence that you adhere to some kind of great tradition, mm -hmm. but you are not bringing that data into a, synth a synthesis of Reformed theology, a question remains, what are you doing with all this retrieval data? Yeah. What, 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 and that's part of my, I don't know if you remember, but the first time you and I talked about this, it was that you gave me your book in PDF and I read it, I printed it out and we talked about it over dinner. But I remember it well. One of the things, <laughs> but one of the things... That, we, that I mentioned to you is that what I found distinct about what you were doing with the doctrine of God and all of these points of theology is that everything was being, everything was contributing to synthesis. 
to reform theology, to the deeper Protestant conception, to a reformed path, so that at the end, everything contributed to the clarity of the representational principle, let's say, whereas when I read a Carter, when I read a Matthew Barrett, when I read a Scott Swain, when I, when I read these guys, and I read them a lot, I don't see them contributing to anything ultimate in theology. Yeah. It just seems like a one-off. Yeah, it, it's, that's what's plaguing us right now. And I'll give you a, a theory on, on how this happened, uh, because it's lamentable. I think due largely but not exclusively to the departure from classical confessional Reformed Trinitarianism in Frame and Oliphant and other people who claimed to be Vantillian but were really not. I think these men initially saw the need to find some Trinitarian alternative because Neo-Socinianism, Neo-Hegelianism, two modes of existence, covenantal properties won't work. It's just not, it's not orthodox. It's not biblical. It's not creedal. It's not confessional. It's not orthodox. And I think that there was an initial propension to go back and properly look at the way Aquinas or others uh, have spoken of the attributes of God. And there is something that can be marginally helpful about that. We can find conceptual points of overlap when it comes to attributes, when it comes to Aquinas and Van Til, even. But what's missing, and what I think is telling, is that to get Aquinas, you need a lot more than his definitions of attributes. You need to read about the way he synthesized Aristotelianism, Neoplatonism in the context Dionysian of Dionysian mysticism. Uh, for yeah. instance, you need to read and digest a book like this, The Mystery of Union with God, uh, mm -hmm. the Dionysian mysticism in Albert the Great and Thomas Aquinas. And you need to recognize that the, the synthesized Aristotelianism and Neoplatonism in a Dionysian mystical framework yields a theology that is programmatically self-cohesive and develops, Thomas, develops medieval Catholicism in a way that is programmatically and systematically ingenious. And I think the reason why when you read the, the Swains and the Barretts and others, it feels so piecemeal and so isolated and we appreciate and retrieve this, but the system's not there, is that I, I don't think there's been an attempt to come to terms with Thomas as one of, if not the, well, the greatest uh, synthetic theological mind of the medieval period. Um, Pope Pius V called him the brightest light in the history of the Roman Catholic Church. I know some people don't want to call Roman Catholic, Roman Catholic until Trent, but Pope Pius V yeah. says Thomas is the brightest light of the tradition. Trent is a revival of Thomism. That uh, programmatic character of Thomas yeah. has not been appreciated, and I think it's because the initial run to Thomas was just a, a kind of band-aid on doctrine of God to fix these problems. And now the weeds have gotten so deep and people like me and others are calling out, you know, and mapping out what Thomas says programmatically. Um, I, my hope is that these men will recognize that you can retrieve certain 
things in Thomas, those definitions of attributes yeah. and maybe a few other things, but especially divine attributes, you can achieve them. But the method and the theological system and the implications for uh, nature, grace, sin, sacraments, and beatitude, participation, participation we've got yeah. to say no to that. The Reformed tradition yeah. has said no to that. Uh, you know, well, Bavink, last point, Bavink calls yeah, yeah. that Dionysian mysticism uh, a melting union that eviscerates yeah. the creator-creature distinction. And Absolutely. That that's got to. We've got to find a way to uh, appreciate Thomas and appreciate traditional Roman Catholicism, yet maintain the programmatic theological critique that the best of our tradition has maintained. Yeah, and I, you know, honestly, like some of the things that you. Uh, advance as far as Thomas and, and everything you're talking about right now, because when you talk to Thomas and you talk to people retrieving Thomas, it's amazing to me. I don't know what your experience has been, Lane. Obviously, you know better than I do, but they just, they really don't reckon with this issue of beatific vision, ontology, eschatology in Thomas, participation in Thomas. But I'm reading all the Thomistic scholars right now. Giles Emery. You you suggested a book by Giles Emery. I'm knee deep in that book right now. <laughs> I'm reading Darius Bazzano. I'm reading Feingold and and Ryan Harnahooter. All of them begin. <laughs> they begin at the very outset talking about this is who Thomas is. It is a participation in the direct participation in the essence of God. It is a path of beatitude. It is an eschatology and ontology. And and it's like, you know, participation in the essence is for Thomas what so central and programmatic, what, in a sense, the representational principle is for Van Til. Yes. It, 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 is, it is there at every stage of the theological development of, of Thomas. And if you think if you try to downplay it in any way, it's just not what the Thomistic scholars are saying. Yeah, you're not you're not being true to Thomas and you're not appreciating his genius. And that Emilio, I'm so glad you mentioned that. All those books, I won't pull them down. All of them are right here that I grab regularly to read. Uh, the, yeah. the Summa is up there, and then these these commentators are there. And, and and here's what's so important about what you just said. And I've I've often said this to uh, brothers who are interested in this conversation. I would love to have the men that you named come on to your program, come on to Reformed Forum, and actually map out unabashedly. We had fine golden leg do it on Reformed Forum a while back, but map this yeah. out and show that the central eschatological concept for Thomas is ontological reproportioning of the, of the human person, particularly the intellect, to participate in the light of glory directly and immediately in the essence of God, to view it where there is no creaturely medium any longer, but the intellect is the, the essence is the medium for the direct and immediate participation. And then set that in contrast to Voss and Bavink on the nature and destiny of man in traditional reformed covenant theology. And what that would do, this would be so useful for all of those who are interested in Thomas, it would help them come to terms with what you're actually trying to retrieve if you read Thomas sympathetically and systematically the way his best Roman Catholic interpreters do. 
That hasn't happened yet. And my goal in the next uh, three to five years is to the extent that we can have Thomists, true Thomistic scholars, Roman Catholic Thomistic scholars, uh, the Hooter volume you've talked about, Bound for Beatitude, come yeah. on and speak yeah. about yeah. the connection between the light of nature, the light of grace, and the light of glory, and what the participation in the essence and the ontological reproportioning of the intellect means for that system of theology. It would be wonderful because the Gerhardus Voss taught us this. He said, if you want to get to the heart of any system, look at the nature and destiny of man. Look at what beatitude is in that system, and the whole system will come open for you. And that's why, brother, I keep coming back so regularly to image and covenant reform federalism. Yeah. yeah. Amen. No, amen. Let's develop that reform path a little bit more. In your book, you, you, you tackle the autotheon controversy. Why is autotheon so important, and correct me if I'm wrong, the whole book, this book that you've written here, it, it kind of leads in, a, in an intensification kind of way, intensifies and ascends, climaxing in the representational principle. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And so how does autotheon fit in to this? What, what does that contribute to the discussion of what Van Til is after? Yeah, that's a, that's a great question. Uh, Van Til says that the great uh, heresy in Trinitarianism of any form is subordinationism. He directly correlates the degree of subordinationism in Trinitarian theology to the degree of paganism in your theology. And one of the reasons he does that is that in a classical uh, understanding of Neoplatonic philosophy, there is an emanation from the good to lower levels of being. And the Reformed, the Augustinian and Calvinist tradition as it develops is concerned that there be no understanding of emanation allowed in to our Trinitarian theology because emanation is going to ascribe an attribute set to the Father that you cannot ascribe to the Son. And then perhaps an attribute set for the Son you can't ascribe to the Spirit. And so when, when Van Til, following Calvin, uh, is, is formulating the doctrine of autothean personhood, here's, here's what he's wanting to say. He's wanting to say that we must take the doctrine of simplicity seriously. Hmm. And that means that the deity of each person, Father, Son, Holy Spirit, is not either communicated or sustained by another. That's the simplest way I know how to put it. The Father's deity is not communicated or sustained by the Son. The Son's deity is not communicated or sustained by the Father. And the Spirit's deity is neither communicated nor sustained by the Father and the Son. Let me use an attribute. The Father has a saity of himself. The Son has a saity of himself. The Spirit has a saity of himself because of the Trinitarian persons, none of them 
derive by way of communication or are sustained in their deity, in their aseity, aseity by another person. And I think that we, we need to appreciate this. And this is misunderstood. I, I've become aware of a, of a review of, um, I, I don't know uh, if it's coming out or when it's coming out, but I've, I've become aware of a very strange view that some Reformed people hold about Calvin's doctrine of autotheos. Uh, this idea that when we consider the Son simpliciter, he has his deity from himself. When we consider the Son um, relationally, he has his person from the Father in an ineffable act of generation. But when, um, when you look at the development of autothean personhood, Francis Turretin explicitly affirms it, explicitly maintains it, says things that might not be as consistent with it as Calvin would have appreciated. And then I was speaking to Chad Van Dixhorn recently, and he told me that numbers of Westminster divines held to autotheos. Numbers of them did. And that the Westminster Confession of Faith at no point is formulated in a way that denies autotheos. In fact, the same in substance, equal in power and glory, that really strong language of common unity in the essence and all of the attributes of the essence belonging equally to each person. Um, Van Dixhorn, I don't want to put words in his mouth, and I want to be really careful the way I put this, but that is perfectly consistent with the autothean personhood. And the reason I say that is there are some, Emilio, even in my uh, more narrow Orthodox Presbyterian tradition, who want to see Calvin somehow on an island and say that the Reformed following him and the confessional statements that are made in the Westminster Standards are anti-autotheon. Uh, they're not at all. That's not true. I think there are varying degrees of appropriation and so on. But but why why is this important? Well, it, with that with that in view, one of the reasons why this is important for Van Til is that there is no hierarchy in the Trinity. The processional relations of personal origin are processional relations among persons who are in themselves subsistence of the entire divine nature and do not receive their deity or are upheld in their deity by another. And that, that helps Van Til then to say, contra the Eastern Orthodox tradition, the unity of God is not found in the Father alone. The Father is not the arche of the Son's deity. He is not the fountain of deity for the Son. It also helps Van Til explain the filioque clause. It's not that the Father spirates the Spirit alone, traditional Eastern view. It's not that the Father through the Son spirates the Spirit, so the Father is active and the Son is only instrumental. No, the, the uh, one test of autothean uh, personhood can be tethered to the filioque clause, because why? The Spirit is spirated by the Father, by the Son. And in a traditional Eastern model, the Father is the archaic or source not only of the unity of the Trinity, 
but of the essence and person of the Son and the essence and person of the Spirit. So, so what is Van Til doing? Why is it so important? It avoids subordinationism. It is uh, maintained by the luminaries in the Protestant scholastic, uh, Reformed scholastic tradition. Westminster Confession enshrines it, certainly doesn't teach against it. And it, it helps express the doctrine of the filioque and moves Van Til toward the equal ultimacy of unity and diversity in the Trinity. There is no priority of unity. There is no locating the unity of God in the Father. And and so the doctrine of autotheos is very helpful uh, in in that regard. Second yeah. point, and I'll be briefer here. Yeah, yeah. Uh, the second point, autotheos really helps Van Til with this. If each Trinitarian person is a subsistent relation of the divine essence, understood in the sense that each person is ase, the Father is ase, the Son is ase, the Spirit is ase, then you have built into their identity intrinsic aseity, intrinsic simplicity, intrinsic immutability in living relations of processional uh, in living in in living relations of processional personal origin so that generation is an eternal act of god but it showcases what the deity of both persons and the life that is in both persons in those relations. And it moves Van Til to this formulation that becomes very important for uh, a doctrine of perichoresis, very important for representational principle, very important for revelation. And I'll put it simply, if, if this has gone by quickly, let me put it simply for those who are listening. Autotheos helps us conceive of immutable, living, self-contained, ase Trinitarian persons. Mm. They don't change. They don't derive their deity from another in some act of communication. They're not maintained in their deity by another Trinitarian person. Each person simply is the whole God. And so I think that um, one of the reasons why Van Til would, would, would maintain that is this massive breadth of 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 issues that I've just covered, it it really showcases the flowering of Western Trinitarianism. I I believe Autotheon is one of the great contributions of John Calvin, and represents the flowering of yeah. Western Trinitarian theology of the equal ultimacy of unity and diversity in the Godhead. Yeah, in your book, on page 113, you say Van Til believes that Calvin conceived more clearly, more clearly than did they, that is the Orthodox Fathers, that the persons of the Trinity are wholly equal to one another, close quote. Calvin did not fundamentally disagree with the Nicene Fathers, but sought to advance the clarity of their claim regarding consubstantial Trinitarian persons. Yep. In Van Til's estimation... Calvin's Trinitarian theology, the absolute equality of the persons, was for him the all-important matter. 
So it was as if Calvin was advancing homoousius. He wasn't he wasn't seeking to undermine classical Trinitarianism. No, in fact, I, I think it's a radical misunderstanding to say that. I, I even had, I won't say who it is because I don't want to embarrass him, uh, I had a, a member, a ministerial member in the Orthodox Presbyterian Church accuse Calvin, in a, in a personal note to me, accuse Calvin of departing from the classical tradition, of departing from Nicaea, of departing from uh, uh, creedal Orthodox Trinitarianism. Uh, Calvin's own self-understanding was that he wasn't doing that at all. Uh, as any good Reformed theologian is doing, we are Reformed and always reforming in light of biblical teaching contained in the creeds and confessions. And so uh, Calvin not, is— Not even Bellarmine—I mean, not even Bellarmine would accuse him of that, right? Yeah, that's, Bellarmine, that's what gets even, me. Bellarmine he, is— He even admitted he was Orthodox. Yeah, that's what—and and, but, but this kind of—the uh, retrieval movement— really can create people who have, um, I'm not talking about their motives, I'm just talking about its outworking, uh, wild and almost um, unchristian, uncharitable readings of Calvin, accusing him of heterodoxy on this. And I think that, um, let's just put it this way, Turretin affirms autotheos, Bellarmine recognizes it is orthodox, and so, no matter what Reformed confessional theologians may say about Calvin, certainly they shouldn't be more critical than Bellarmine <laughs> and try to dismiss Calvin from orthodoxy. Uh, I do think it is, I share this with uh, Warfield, uh, Brandon Ellis's book is helpful here. Yep. I, I do yep. think that it is um, a flowering of Western Trinitarianism and an enrichment of yeah. Nicene Christ, uh, Trinitarian theology uh, in in Calvin, I really do. Yeah, 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 yeah. So does does that does that notion of autotheon does that make the does that make the the circle of perichoresis thicker? <laughs> yeah, <laughs> you know what yeah. I mean. Yeah. Does it make it fuller, thicker? <laughs> Does it make it more uh, perichoretic? <laughs> I actually <laughs> think know? it does, and and let me let me say <laughs> let me say why. You know, when we talk, help, ab- the, listen, help the listeners because they're probably completely. Lost oh yeah, yeah. <laughs> I was about to do that. Uh, when we talk about relations of subsistence, which I just talked about, that's how persons relate to essence. It's an is of identity. The father just is the whole undivided essence. The Son just is the whole undivided essence. The Holy Spirit just is the whole undivided essence, including aseity. That's the whole point of Calvin when it comes to a robust doctrine of simplicity. Now, perichoresis isn't the relation of persons to essence. It's the relation of persons to persons within the Godhead. And so it's also, I call it in the book, a relation of personal co-inherence. And I won't repeat everything I say uh, from Turretin in there, but, but there's an ineffable sense in which the persons are exhaustively interior to one another, dwell in one another, but in such a way that their personal properties are not eviscerated. So... You can think of it this way. 
in the eternal generation of the Son, when the um, person of the Son is generated, and that is a filial relation, in that filial relation between two consubstantial persons who are intrinsically ase as God, in that filial relation where the Father is relating to the Son in an act, ineffable act of generation, there is included in that a co-inherent relation, a, a relation of personal indwelling, so that the Father begets the Son, and in that act, the Son indwells the Father, not, because, not just because both are divine from themselves, as God, but they indwell one another in a holy interior, what what Turretin will call a mutual embrace that is exhaustively interior and and, and personal. And that, this is the key, that is beatitude. The beatitude of the Father and the Son is that as both are God in themselves. Both are ase as subsistences of the, the Godhead. In the, in the eternal generation of the Son, in that primal filial relation, that eternal filial relation, there is person dwelling in person in mutual and perfect divine, uh, beatitude as one God. Now we could add the Spirit. I'm just trying to keep it simple for listeners. Yeah, yeah. But 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 that the the autotheos really helps with that. Why? Because you already have the qualities peculiar to each person. You have um, all of the. Let me put it this way: all of the attributes are present without remainder in each person as God. And in this filial relation, you have the coherence of these persons who are God. And so it's a it's a it's it's a fuller, richer, more robust Trinitarian conception to say that you have these three relations. You have um, relations of procession Relations of subsistence, relations of coherence in the Godhead, and autotheos is, I think, remarkably helpful in conceptualizing all yeah. of those relations. And yeah, I, as, as would, it be fair to say, if, would it be fair to say, if you didn't have autotheon, that in a sense the Father would have a thicker circle or a thicker color in the circle or something like that? Yes, would you, be, you, you would have... Your, let, let me put it this way. Autotheos, and I'm going to want to make a Venn diagram. We don't want to make a Venn diagram or anything, but we have to try to conceptualize it somehow. Yeah, he's not, if, you, if your favorite color is red, he's not redder than the sun, and the sun redder than the spirit. There yeah. is equal fullness as God that is present. Why? Because the West doesn't locate unity in the Father, but in the essence. And it's, mm. a, it's a non-negotiable mm. thing. And that mm. essence consists of three personal subsistences. 
and those personal subsistences are related by processional and coherent in processional and coherent ways. And so, um, but but in but I was going to say this, and I think this is helpful to your yeah. point on the yeah. Eastern conception of the processions. The father's bright red. The father's the arche, the source. He has a satiety of himself, and he is the fountain of the son's deity. The essence mm-hmm. is, in a sense, donated to the son, as mm-hmm. it were. Mm-hmm. And then the same is said and uh, conceived of the spirit. And, and, and the West, the moment it makes the move to locate the unity of God in the essence, but not in the father— it, it does two things. I think it becomes implicitly autotheon. I know that's before Calvin. And I think the autotheon character of traditional Western theology, its implicit autotheon character comes out in the filioque because it's not that the father spirates the spirit directly, unilaterally, or only through the son, but the father and the son are equally active in spirating the spirit. And that Equal activity points, at least implicitly, to the autothean character and equal ultimacy of Trinitarian persons. Um, yeah. Um, yeah. No, go ahead. Fin- you want to finish your no, thought, that's or okay. can I move that's to okay. the next? Well, because one of the things that I always look for is what's the cash value, so to speak, but at the same time, uh, you gave a connection between perichoresis, autotheon, perichoresis, really perichoresis, and indoxation, which I can't let you get off the hook without talking about indoxation. We both love Klein very much and are fans of Klein. But uh, in your book, you say the spirit's inhabiting of the holy space of heaven is a creational replica of the personal indwelling of the Trinitarian persons in perichoresis. I, I, I thought that was absolutely brilliant to bring that point across to say that what God does at the creational level is a reflection, a replica of what is going on within the interior life of God. I thought that was absolutely brilliant, helpful, and it gave the rationale for what God does mm. in time and space in his redemptive acts. And so yeah. I thought I thought that was so good uh, to point that. You want to elaborate a little bit? Just I a do, second I that. do. You're... Emilio, you're on fire tonight, brother. Let me just tell you, you're always on fire. <laughs> no, 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 no. I, it, it might no, be. I set the fire. No, I set the fire. I just let you. I would just watch you burn. <laughs> no, no. But but listen, just so your listeners know, you just outlined that little that little section was written with awareness of my next major book. My next huh? book is on this very point, and let me let me explain this because I think our listeners will find this fascinating. Okay. Just as in the Trinitarian processions, the Father begets the Son, and then the Father and the Son spirate the Spirit, and then there is perichoretic return in both of those acts. The Son perichoretically indwells the Father, the Spirit perichoretically indwells the Son and the Father. In, in, and, and they indwell one another in relations of coherence or in perichoresis. Well, brother, I have been developing a Trinitarian theology of divine relations to the upper register to fill out Klein. And here's what I've got so far. The Father 
in the in the alpha point of creation in Genesis one one. For those who are familiar with my um, foundations book, those who are familiar with my last two reform form lectures, those who are familiar with this section that you quoted. There is a distinct Trinitarian relation to heaven and earth. Heaven first, Genesis 1-1, absolute beginning, yep. and then the earth mm-hmm. in a space of six days, and then Sabbath rest on the seventh. Well, what I want it to, to put it as simply as I know how, and then talk about its cash value, in the absolute beginning, the Father is coronet on the glory throne in the heaven temple. The Son by the Father is incoronate at his right hand, and the Spirit is indoxate by the Father and the Son and illumines that heaven temple with pneumatic glory. So that if you were an angel in the absolute beginning— and that, and that pneumatic glory is the glory of the entire triune God. There it is. It's the glory of yeah. the Father and the Son in the Spirit. Yeah. And it's what irradiates that tripersonal glory of coronation, incoronation, and indoxation. Yeah. It's what irradiates the heaven temple with the glory of God. It sets it aglow. And the yeah. angels, the moment they open their eyes, uh, Job 38, um, um uh, Nehemiah, Nehemiah 9, 9, 5, and 6, yeah. they instantly worship that glory. They instantly mm-hmm. sing songs of praise to that triune glory because it is their beatitude to gaze upon the glory of the Lord in his temple and to be filled with the fullness of personal fellowship with the Father in the Son by the Spirit. Now, the cash value of that, and this is what I think is so beautiful, is that that is the realm where holy persons that indwell one another from all eternity come to indwell that heaven temple for the purpose of personal communion, not participation in the time of God, Bart, not participation in the being of God, Aquinas, but personal fellowship with the coronet father incarnate son and indoxate spirit and and from that reality you have a dual referent ontological and economic for adam and by extension eve as the image and likeness of god uh mm. and and i'll just say this and then i'll stop because this is previewing a book i want to write soon um well we'll say this say this and then transition to the rep- to the uh uh, transition to the deeper Protestant conception because that's really where that's where I'm it going. Goes. That's exactly yeah. where I'm going. Yeah. And and here's here's the segue. I'll segue directly to the deeper Protestant conception and then back up and say how it's the representational principle. What I'm saying here, um, uh, if the the Holy Spirit, if if people have heard my lectures on this, it's old hat. If not, they're probably like, goodness gracious, what is he saying? But the Spirit, uh, the Holy Spirit sanctifies that heaven temple, sets it apart. He, he makes it a, a temple dwelling. The sun, as incarnate, regalizes the heaven temple. It's a kingly dwelling. It's both a priestly and kingly dwelling. It's both holy and royal. Um, it, it, to put it in language of the image, holy and righteous. Right? Mm. 
and and um it, and the father uh it's a little more technical I, I won't deal with it but when when you move from the upper register um with coronation and coronation and indoxation is a creational replica of perichoresis where holy persons indwell created space as the beatitude of the creature just as holy persons indwell one another as the beatitude of god himself but then when adam is created as the image of god genesis 2 7 at least three things come into view he is holy as a priest he is righteous as a king and he speaks forth words of righteousness as a prophet that is a replica of that glory dimension of heaven in coronation in coronation and indoxation adam is a is a lower register image bearing replica of the triune god and he is holy he is righteous and he speaks forth and teaches all that is right and true just as when jesus comes he says i'm teaching you all that i've i've learned uh, all that the father has given me to say and 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 so this explains not only that he's righteous and holy and in his knowledge of god but it also explains why he must be ordered as the image of god to heaven why because the in do- the coronate, incarnate, and indoxate triune God in the heaven temple at the beginning and ending of the creation week is the beatitude of elect angels and men. So mm-hmm. the image is intrinsically a replica of God in his glo- epiphanic revelation in heaven is therefore ordered to the realm of beatitude. And so then the question is, from the standpoint of the representational principle, you have one who replicates those relations of personal communion and indwelling, created in natural religious fellowship with God, in personal communion with God, in true knowledge, righteousness, and holiness, ordered to heaven, what does he need? Because he's not in need of participating in the essence of God, but in need of advancing his estate from earth to heaven, he needs what? A covenant. He needs the covenant of works. And then he's constituted by covenant, not by creation, but by covenant of what? A representative of the whole human race, descending from him by ordinary generation. So, So Adam, as created in true knowledge, righteousness, and holiness, and communion with God, ordered to the upper register temple throne dwelling of God. And then in covenant with God, that covenant is the means for his advance, and it includes representation of the whole of those who descend from him by ordinary generation. What I've just described is a kind of Vossian and Kleinian explanation of Van Til's representational principle. And this is bonus material because it's not in the book. Your paragraph you picked up on is the embryonic suggestion. This is the flowering of it. And that's the next yeah. book that I want to write uh, for f- and publish with Reform Forum. Maybe, yeah, may, maybe. Um, and, and that is really, really uh, scintillating theology for people that are just picking up on this and just, I mean, I know, I know several brothers that are just waiting for this conversation and I know that this will... I know that this is going to be incredibly 
uh, intriguing to them. But uh, maybe a couple passages that that might end up expounding on that that I can think of. Of course, the representational principle would be 1 Corinthians 15, 42 and 49, where as Christ becomes life-giving spirit, he becomes a perfect representation, right? And and the, the symmetry there with Adam. But maybe also, I don't know, Lane, if you would suggest maybe further study on this, but Exodus 28 and the endowment of the priest there, mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. and sort of the edemic themes that are found in the priest's garments and his glory, that he was be, was to be made with beauty and glory and honor and those kinds of things. Uh, do you think those are maybe some legitimate uh, you know, pathways to understand the principle of rep- replication, representation? I absolutely do, and I'll put three books on it that I think you're thinking of, I suspect. Uh, the First mm-hmm. Corinthians 15 text, Gaffin's Resurrection and Redemption and the Pauline Eschatology, map out yep. the way that Adam is a representative federal head who fails. Uh, Christ is a representative federal head of his elect, not all who descend from Adam by early generation, but by his elect. And then climb in images of the Spirit, on Exodus 28 is just stunning because he sees in the um, the office and in the the symbolic clothing of Aaron just such a replication of the glory spirit, just such an anticipation of Jesus as federal head, and so th- there there really is I think Emilio in. In this, because the representational principle for Van Til is the way that Trinitarian ontology and covenantal eschatology are integrated, right? Trinitarian theology, covenantal eschatology are integrated in the representational principle. Well, the substantial contours by which that's to be filled out are found primarily in the works of Voss and Klein. Uh, I think Gaffin's got some, but Klein and Voss have more that can be developed here. And so I do think that as as this begins to develop, we're going to be able to say to people, look, Bart is wrong, that there is no primal Christ event, there's incoronation. And it's the incarnation of the indoc- of the of the unfleshed logos, not yet incarnate. And 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 it, participation in God's time, participation in the essence of God, which is temporalized. That's what Bart says. Gone. That's gone. This this theology kills it. But on the other side, um, it's not, uh, indoxation is not, and incarnation, that theology, is not offering to Adam participation in the essence of God, but entering into the fullness of personal communion with God. It's not the advancement, it's not the the ontological reproportioning of nature, but the advancement of covenantal estate that indoxation brings into view. And so I am so excited. Oh, and uh, and Herman Ritterboss on 1 Corinthians 15 is huge yeah. too. So Ritterboss, Klein, and Voss especially. Oh, brother, it is. It's. Yeah. I'm so excited to write it. It will be yeah. um, written at about the same level of the Van Til book, but it'll be more exegetically driven and more self-consciously seeking to integrate systematic and biblical theology in a Vossian tradition. 
That's great. Exciting. You know, I'll read it. I know you will, brother. <laughs> I'll, re I'll read it and I'll have you on to talk about it. <laughs> no, that, no, I appreciate brother, your insight yeah, in this. No, man, this has been, this has been a, a ton of fun. And uh, I'm so grateful that you made the time, brother. And I wish you were feeling a little bit better, but you seem to do just fine. So <laughs> yeah, uh, I think, I think it worked out great. I'm hanging brother, out. Thank you. Yeah, Lane, no, thank you so much, brother. And so let's just, let's just wrap it up. And I just want to Again, for our viewers and our listeners, make sure you run out and grab the book by Dr. Tipton, uh, The Trinitarian Theology of Cornelius Van Til. I've been passing it around. I've been recommending it everywhere I go, and it's something that you need to read, reread, and read again. It's one of those books, and I know that you will enjoy it. So anyway, but thanks a lot for listening. Thank you so much uh, for subscribing and sharing this the podcast and the episodes. God bless all of you for another episode of Christ and Kingdom. Uh, as always, I'm Emilio Ramos. Thanks again to our guest, Lane Tipton. Thank you. God bless you guys. Thank you.